Yeah. Um, just to rehash this because I don't rehash this all the time. Sometimes you just move forward knowing you've already said it, you've already rehashed it. Um, but since we have some some guests with us this morning, we'll kind of rehash the way this goes. Okay. Um, this is a unique situation because although it looks like it's just us, there's a video right there. And that video is going to be posted on YouTube and it's going to go out all over the world. So while it can look like it's just us talking with each other, there's thousands of people that are going to watch that, that I'm take, taking account for as we go through this, right? And, and what I mean when I say that is that there's times where if it was just us in the room, nothing would need to be said or added. But because we have thousands of people watching, people can make conclusions about things that are said that aren't exactly what we're trying to say. Because of that, I will elaborate right. or expound or pose a question and answer it, right? For their benefit, right. not necessarily for our benefit, because we've all been here for a long time and we tend to know what each other means. Yeah. So when I come in and, and talk, it's kind of like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, where he said, let two or three speak and let one discern. Yeah. Okay. Right. There's times where I come in to fill out the picture of what's said. It isn't meant to correct people. That's not what it's about. It's to help people not misunderstand what's being said. It isn't to suggest the way it's said is wrong or it shouldn't have been said like that. It's just understanding the hearts of people and the conclusions they might draw from what's said. And that's a common thing with people. If you read the Apostle Paul's letters, if you notice, he'll say some things. And then he'll recognize that there's the propensity for people to misunderstand what he says. So let us sin. So then he posts a question. Am I saying this? And then he answers the question. No. And he elaborates. So I don't want anybody to think if that happens. You know, and Thomas does it with me sometimes, mm -hmm. right? I'll say something because we're 12 years in. But there could be somebody watching who's three months in. And Thomas will come in and, well, we don't want anybody, right? Yeah. And so I don't want anybody to think if that happens that they're being corrected or that they didn't say it the right way, yeah. right? It's not about that. It's about understanding that we all have our own hearts and we can all hear things a different way. Shocking, isn't it? I mean, you can have two guys that were in the same platoon in Vietnam and they could come out and say something completely opposite about the same experience. Yeah. How is that possible? Yeah. It's because you filter what you hear through your heart. And your heart is based on your experiences and the beliefs you've developed with your experiences. So that's the dynamic here. Everybody's welcome to talk. There's times where Thomas might feel to jump in. I might feel to jump in. Anybody might feel to jump in to help discern what was said. It's not meant to correct. No. So my question is, why is nobody sitting near you? Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get hit. <laughs> All it takes is one or two people to get smacked in the head. Right? I don't want anybody to read anything into that. That's right. <laughs> anyway, I, I felt to rehash it because what's been in my heart for the group talk is like what Paul said to the Corinthians, right? Let, let let people talk and let someone discern yes. what's being right. said, right? right? And fill out the picture. And that's what we do in the group. It isn't meant to make somebody think, well, you didn't say it right. Well, you didn't think it right. No, what? no, no. no. It, it's not about that. And one of the reasons why we preach the, the cross and the resurrection the way that we do is so that we have the liberty to know that yeah. and not take an offense to it. Right. Because one of the things that I think God has for this body, which I'm talking about our group and the people that are connected with our group, is to sit together and allow like a refiner's fire to come forth. I don't know if you guys realize that we've come together and a word has been refined in our presence. And it's happened from all of us coming together and wrestling with God about it. And it has refined a word that is being pumped in the earth. That doesn't mean that's what everybody is doing, but that's what our body, right? That's what the part of the member of the body of Christ that I see us functioning in, right? So I just wanted to remind everybody of that so that if you say something and Thomas or myself or anybody comes in and says, 
this also, right? It's not doesn't mean you're being corrected, right? It doesn't mean you shouldn't say anything. Doesn't mean that you don't know what you're talking about, right? I mean, Birdie come and stayed in my house. Birdie's been ministering since he's 19. Birdie will say something, and I'm like, yes, and this and that and the other. And he even said that in front of the church. Listen, Greg, I say something, and Greg's like, yes. And then he comes and explains all the inner working for like 30 minutes, right? It, it's, it's just the, the dynamic um, that goes on here. So just so everybody can be reminded. Right? Does that make sense? Yes. Mm -hmm. Does anybody have any questions Absolutely. about that? So for you guys watching, that thing will immortalize you <laughs> even beyond the eternal life you already have. And so be aware that if you speak, it will go into the, the, the stratosphere. As everybody here knows, if, if the Holy Spirit moves upon you and you end up sharing something that is deeply personal to you and you don't want it to go, tell me. And I will cut it out. I can edit it, right? And but just just so you know, Brian is much like me in that he's never met a microphone he doesn't like. Okay. 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 Well, well, good. Um, I don't know if anybody has anything specific they wanted to talk about, but I wanted to keep talking about this unless somebody has something pressing. I'm just going to throw out one thing, and it may tie into what you eventually will say. You ever notice? And that sounds like the beginning of a Zeinfeld episode. <laughs> you ever notice uh, that the more you know God, the more perverted the, the world seems? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We watch the news, and Lisa and I, we just complain to each other <laughs> about how stupid and per perverted and corrupt almost everything we see wow. is. Well, that's actually can be, can be kind of encouraging if you realize why is it that you're recognizing that. <laughs> and then you see things that are perverted in you. I'm not saying that you see yourself as perverted. I'm saying you see things in you that are perverted. Right. Mm -hmm. Thoughts that you had or conclusions yeah. or judgments or whatever. That's all I The renewing of the mind. Yeah. Right. And, and just to, to draw a biblical picture of what you're talking about. Jesus was stripped naked on the cross. It, there's no accident that he was stripped naked on the cross. I mean, he's the last Adam, right? And so it's drawing a correlation to the first Adam whose nakedness was also uncovered. Yeah. Okay? Right. So you got two Adams, the first Adam, the last Adam, both of them having their nakedness uncovered. Okay, well, Adam adopted the wisdom of the world, quote unquote, a perverse wisdom. And do you know what that wisdom told Adam? You need to clothe yourself. Right. Well, here comes Jesus, the last Adam. His nakedness is also stripped. The serpent uncovers Jesus's nakedness on the cross, except Jesus thinks the idea of clothing yourself is perverse. <laughs> Jesus thinks the idea that he's left to try to clothe himself is perverse. Mm -hmm. And you see the first man, Adam, he ran and hid from God. You see the last man, Adam, cry out to God, yeah. right? Well, he's not hiding. He wasn't hiding like the first man, Adam. And so you can see a picture of what Thomas is talking about in those things. The reason why the world system looks so perverse to us, deep down, theologically speaking, is because they're trying to clothe themselves with life. And the perversion we see is that when man enlists their own strength to try to bring forth the life of God, we can't. And instead of bringing forth the life of God, we bring forth death. And not only do we bring forth death, we bring forth all sorts of wisdoms and lies and, and beliefs that contradict the knowledge of God. Right? Right. And so we can see that because we've seen the Father with us to clothe us, yeah. right? Because we've seen ourselves in the face of Jesus. And we see when the serpent uncovered Jesus' nakedness on the cross and said, where's your God now? As if God wasn't there to clothe upon him. We see Jesus saw God. The reason we know he saw God is because he called out to him. You don't call out to somebody that you don't think is there. Right. And Jesus even says this in John 12 when he was talking about going to the cross. He says, the time is coming where everyone will scatter from me and it will look like I'm alone. You know what he says? But I won't be alone. You know why he says he won't be alone? Because the Father will be with him. Amen. Paul come and said God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Right? And that ties into this. Can we do one clarification though yeah, before yeah. we go? Just the word nakedness in terms of biblical terms 
you need more mortality and as opposed to immortality, right? Yeah, meaning uh, a body of death. Yes. Instead of a glorified body. Right. I mean, someone who's who's not got the vocabulary. Who's, you know, yeah, yeah. The, the three month person is going to think physical nakedness, but there's the biblical definition. That yeah. Paul talked about longing to be clothed upon and not having your nakedness uncovered. Your nakedness being uncovered would be somebody coming and pointing you and telling you, you don't have something you need for life. Yes. And then they would also tell you, they would point at your ability to bring it forth. Mm -hmm. And you would see you don't have the ability to bring it forth. That's when the shame and the fear would come on. Yeah. Right? right? To be clothed upon, all of us have been swaddled in our hearts from the blood or the depth that's in the earth. Though your sin was as red as crimson, I've made it as white as snow. God swaddled our hearts from the depth that's in the world. So we're feeling clothed upon, even as we're walking in a world, always trying to point at us and tell us we don't have what we need for life. Exactly. Do you know why we feel clothed upon? Because God came and gave us his life. Yes. So how can anything in the world, whether it be wars or famines, or uh, shipwrecked, or peril, or sword. How can any of those things ever tell me I don't have what I need for life? Because I see God has joined himself to me. He has made my body his temple. He's living in me. Amen. That's, why, that's why Paul says, put on Christ. That's why Paul says, put on Christ, right? So to, to that point that God was in Christ, and Christ was not alone on the cross, I, I, I can't get away from this. Okay, so this is Jesus on the cross, but it isn't just Jesus on the cross. It actually depicts what the scriptures talk about. We all say it. It's been a part of the Christian faith forever. Do you know what a big, the, a big staple of the Christian faith is? Jesus is God. Yeah. So if Jesus is God, then how can we remove God from the cross? And what's the ramifications of removing God from the cross if Jesus is God? And so here this cross is, and it shows the whole Godhead. It shows the son, it shows the father embracing him and holding him up, and the dove is the Holy Spirit. So it shows the whole trinity at the cross. Something that's interesting that I saw this morning that, you know, I saw before, but my mom brought it up. You see how it has the father inlaid in gold? Okay, we'll see the, the nail. See how it's gold? It's hard to see the nail in the hand is gold. Now, this is significant because, you know, over the head of Jesus, it said many things. Here, is, here, here hangs the, the king of the Jews. I'm paraphrasing. Remember when the Pharisees said, change it, change it, change it to he said he was? The reason they said that was because acrostically over the cross, the way it was written, do you know what it actually spelled out acrostically, which is a big thing to the Jewish people? They read their letters acrostically. Do you know what it said? It said the name of God. It said Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. You know what that is? Yahweh. Yahweh. It said Yahweh over his head on the cross. What's interesting, I mean, we add the vowels so we can pronounce it. Because how do you pronounce a word that only has consonants? It's very difficult. And so God's language would be, you, hey, ba, hey. How do you say that in one voice? You, you can't, really. But what's interesting about that name, something about the Hebrew language, is they don't just have words. They have pictures with every single letter of the Hebrew language. And in ancient Hebrew, the pictures would tell you what the word means. Now, I bring up the hands today with the, the gold nails because yud Hey vav Hey in the Hebrew pictogram, do you know what it says? Open hand of grace nailed in grace. Wow. That's what the name of God means. Wow. Open hand of grace nailed in grace. And this is going to get into what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to talk about how God has always desired to lay down his life for his people. Mm -hmm. He's always desired to pour himself out for his people. That desire didn't just happen when sin entered in. He desired that from the beginning. God has always been a self-sacrificial love. He has never not been a self-sacrificial love, and he didn't need sin to come in for him to want to lay down his life for his people, yeah. right? And so you, you see the, the hand of God being nailed here, and you see a picture of God laying down his life 
are pouring himself out, emptying himself for his people. Mm. Right? You know something interesting about this also? Do you know the word Torah in Hebrew? And guys, don't misunderstand me. This isn't about how we need to go and learn everything about being a Hebrew and now become a Hebrew according to the flesh. These are just some interesting things that point to the Christ, which is the only thing to know. Christ, as Paul said, contain all the wisdom and treasures of God. So, the word Torah in the Hebrew, does anybody know what that word is in English? Is it law? It's law. It is law. <laughs> Do you know what the Hebrew pictograph says? The word Torah means, which means law in English? Behold the man hanging on a cross. Really? The word Torah has existed from ancient Hebrew. When you break each letter down in the Hebrew, it says, Behold the man hanging on a cross. Wow. Now that's very challenging to us because that doesn't fit with our definition of what a law would be. Hmm. What is our definition of what a law would be? Do this, don't do, do that. Do this or don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Like we, we see it more as a, a, a we see a commandment more as an order instead of a declaration of a truth. Right? We see a law more as, well, there's 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 speed limit signs out there. And so essentially, thou shalt not drive above 65. And if you drive above 65, there's gonna be punishment. Right? That's our idea of a law. But you know, in ancient Hebrew, the word law, do you know what it means? The teaching and instruction of God. It's a teaching and an instruction about something. And so now Torah, which is the word law, is the teaching and instruction of God. And Torah means to behold the man hanging on a cross. This is trying to teach us and instruct us of something. If this is trying to teach us and instruct us of something... Do you know what the devil would want to pervert the most? This. And what we think of it. If this is the teaching and instruction of God, Christ crucified, Paul said, Christ crucified is both the power and the wisdom of God. So if that's the wisdom of God, and this is God trying to teach us and instruct something, do you think the devil wants to pervert what we think about this? Do you think more than anything, now that he can't stop God from conquering death? I mean, Jesus came out of the grave. He never to die again, Paul said. Right? He died unto sin once for all time. Never to be able to die again. So Jesus came out of the grave. The grave couldn't hold him. He sat at the right hand of the Father. Sin cannot climb up into heaven and kill Jesus. He reigns through the power of an indestructible life. So Satan can't stop God from doing what he did. But do you know what he would want to pervert? The wisdom that is the power unto God's life manifesting in people. Yeah. And do you know one of the main ways he tries to pervert it? He tries to remove God from the cross. Yeah. And he tries to get us to see the cross as just a man named Jesus. And I say it that way, and some of you think, well, we don't think he's just a man. We think he's the son of God. Well, if he's the son of God, then that means he's God. <laughs> And if he's God, that means the Father can't be apart from him. Neither can the Holy Spirit be apart from him. Right. So if you remove the Father and the Holy Spirit from the cross, you might not think you're saying it, but what you're essentially saying is Jesus is not God. Yeah. And what you're essentially saying is, is he is not the Son of God. Because God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Yes. And if there isn't Father, Son, and Spirit, then it's not God. And so if you remove the Son... From the Godhead, you're basically saying God didn't exist. Mm. And so God is trying to teach us something about himself yeah. and his love for us. And he's trying to do it through this. Yeah. Right? Do you know what tells somebody you love them? Let's say I've been sentenced to death. Let's say I've done something that sentenced me to death. That by my own works... I've done something that's earned me death, right? And that thing is reigning over me. There's no way out. That's it. Do you know what would convince me that somebody loved me? To take your place. To take your place. If they came and looked me in the face and said, 
it rents me to the deepest part of my being to think about you dying. Let it never be. I'd rather come into the earth and take that sentence of death into myself than let you die. That's what this is. And that's God. And it's supposed to declare to you the love of God. Greater love has no man than to lay down his life for who? His His friends. His friends. What does it say about God? He's the friend of sinners. 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 You know the greatest act of God being our friend? I had a guy growing up in high school. The guy would literally take a bullet for me. I never understood why the guy would take a bullet for me. But you know what I did understand? This guy loves me. And you know what else I understand? This guy's my friend. Right? And you know, I've stayed with that guy my whole life because of that. Because I don't know many people naturally that would like lay down their life for me. I, I just don't. And that's not to disparage anybody. But it did something to me to see that about him. That's what God's trying to say about the cross. That's what God's trying to tell us about the cross. Does it say Jesus is a friend of the righteous? Does it say God is a friend of the righteous or God is the friend of sinners? Sinners. sinners. If you're a sinner, what kind of friend do you need? God. <laughs> I mean, let's just be honest. Do you know what it means to be a sinner? I, I know we've described sinner in, in an improper context as if a sinner is a bad person. Yeah, someone like an eternal life. A sinner is someone that's in bondage to death and doesn't have eternal life. Yeah. So if we were sinners in bondage to death, it says we were all our days in bondage through the fear of death. If we were sinners in bondage to death, not having eternal life, do you know the kind of friend that we needed? We needed the kind of friend that would come and take our death into themselves. But not just take our death into themselves, we needed them to have a life that could even overcome death in the flesh. That's the kind of friend we need. There's only one friend that'll do. I don't need a friend that will just come lament with me and say, I'm very sorry that you're going to die. And I'll take your death for you. But guess what? I can't save you from death because I don't have a life that can overcome death. So we'll just die together. And you can even feel some comfort in somebody dying with you rather than dying alone. I mean, it's better, I guess, to die with someone than to die alone. But we didn't need the kind of friend that would just come die with us. We needed the kind of friend that in taking the sting of death that was stinging us, they had something in them that couldn't die. And that was greater than death. Do you know the only one who has a life that can't die? God! Jesus is God. Do you know why it says it wasn't possible for death to hold him? Because he's God. And we've come and preached the cross as if he isn't God, as if God wasn't there. But the whole point God's trying to make is, I came and got in your pig slop with you. You were dead in sin, and the thought of you perishing alone in the darkness rent me to the deepest part of my being. And it hurt me so bad that I found something inside of myself that said, let it never be. And so I came into the earth. I prepared a body for my word. John called Jesus the word. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. Does everybody just, everybody know that at Christmas, what do we celebrate? Emmanuel. Who's Emmanuel? Jesus. Well, is Jesus no longer Emmanuel on the cross? Is all of a sudden this not God with us? We don't realize our theology has taught us that this is not God with us. This is God with us. This is God providing himself as a lamb, just like Abraham told Isaac. God will provide himself a lamb. This is God laying down his life for his people, right? This is God. And so the point being is that God came after us, just like he came after Adam. When we were dead, when we were in sin, when we were filled with fear, when we were filled with torment, when we were hurting, when we were confused, even when we were cursing God. This is us taking our anger out on God. I mean, God came to heal us and the the world nailed him to a cross. He came to save the world and they nailed him to a tree. If you're a minister, don't ever get confused and you think you're only trying to do good and people think you're nailing him to a cross. Don't, Don't let it confuse you. It's gonna happen sometimes. This is God. And this doesn't just have a cross effect in that one moment in history. Do you know what this is supposed to do for the rest of us? 
we're still going to encounter darkness in the earth. Yes. Does everybody understand that? Yes. Yes. We're still going to encounter pain, hurt, confusion. We're going to be stung sometimes by the things people do to us. We're going to be stung sometimes by the things that happen to us and to our loved ones. We're going to be stung sometimes. Do you know what this is supposed to do for us? It's supposed to open our eyes to God with us in the midst of the darkness instead of thinking God wasn't there and therefore he's not with us in the midst of our darkness. Mm -hmm. If you think God wasn't there in the midst of the darkness, guess what's going to happen? Every time you encounter darkness, you're going to think God isn't there. How many of you felt like God has forsaken you before? When did you think about God had forsaken you? Was it when the good times were rolling? Was it when it was La Bonton Roulette? No. That's a Mardi Gras saying, sorry, we're in carnival season. Laissez les bon temps rouler. Let the good times roll. You never think God's not there when things are going good? No. When is it that you hear the voice, where's God? Who is it that said, where's God? When Jesus was on the cross, wasn't it the Pharisees? Yes. Weren't the Pharisees of their father, the devil? Yes. So whose voice is it when you hear the thought, where's God? Serpent. The serpent. Hmm. And so, you know what the devil wants? He wants, he's got death in the earth. And what he wants to do is he wants to sting you with that death that's in the earth. Tribulation, whatever you want to call it. And he wants you to conclude it's a sign God's not there. Right? Do you know what blows that thought up? The cross. You know what Satan had been telling the world since Adam? Where's your God now? Mm-hmm. You know what Satan been telling the world since Adam? Let him come for you if he'll have you. He's abandoned you. He's forsaken you. You're an orphan. You're an orphan. You don't have someone to clothe you. Right. So God had to enter into the midst of that darkness and reveal that he was there. The only way he could do that is if the son put on the likeness of sinful flesh, took death into himself, and heard all the voices of where's your God now, and in the midst of that, see God and cry out to him. Abba! Now all of a sudden, is God? God's there? What? And then you start backtracking. You know, like the Scrooge movie, The Ghost of Christmas Past? You know how Scrooge concluded things about his life? None of them were true. And then all of a sudden, the Ghost of Christmas Past took him back and revealed his life to him. And he started, wait, that's what this is supposed to do. Yes. All the times you thought God wasn't there, all the times you thought God had failed you, All the times you thought you were an orphan, that you were alone, that nobody cared. Like we used to say it funnily in high school, you guys hear me? That I'm all alone. That's right. In the cold, heartless little world. I just want to be loved. Is that so wrong? This is the declaration that you've never been alone. This is the declaration that in the midst of the thick darkness, which is the death, the shadow of death, tribulation, God was always there. You know what happens when you start to believe that? You start to look to him. You start to cry out to him. You start to see he was always there with me. Do you know some of the deepest pains we feel in our heart is when we encountered the hell that's in this world as children and we concluded no one was there. No one loved us. No one was there when we needed them the most. And we don't understand the deep trauma that places in us when we make that conclusion and how it shapes our lives going forward. And what happens is, is God comes and blows that up and says, you want to know if I was there? You want to know if I care? Here I am. And all of a sudden you start to see he was there. You start to see that you were never alone. You start to see that he did care. You start to see that he could even see that the world was going to try to destroy you long before you were even born. And this is what he came and did because he saw what would happen. And this is what you start to look at. And this is what you start to see. And you start to... See God with you. Isn't that what Emmanuel is the whole point? Mm -hmm. God with you. God with you. When Jesus was born of a woman, was the world sinners or were they righteous? Okay, so God with who? Sinners. 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 Where were the sinners at? In bondage to death. So God dwelling with people in bondage to death. Thomas. I have an editorial footnote. I can remember going on Catholic retreats and being alone at night and staring up at the crucifix in a field 
not knowing what the hell I was looking at, <laughs> except that, you know, in the Catholic tradition, that's the cross that Jesus died on and all that. But I mean, I can remember sitting there for hours looking at it. So I know you're using this as a uh, <clears throat> point of illustration. Faith comes to my hearing and hearing by the word of God. I know you're not saying, look at the cross. <laughs> we need the spirit to reveal the meaning of the cross. Yeah. Yes. And because I believe me, I spent some time looking at the cross. <laughs> and I didn't get any meaning. <laughs> Except the meaning that someone lied to me and said, yeah, he took your, he took your death sentence for you. Uh, because God was mad at you. And he took his, his wrath, his wrath. Yeah. Or yeah. wrath. Yeah. Is, uh, yeah. wrath. Say. Uh, and so... Uh, Coupled with looking at the cross is ask God to explain to you what he's trying to say to you through the cross. Yeah. Yeah. This is a word. Jesus yeah. is the word. Yeah. It's like it, that flesh. could be, uh, you could say, uh, let's say someone says something to you in Russian. Okay. I've heard the <laughs> word, but what does it mean? Yeah. Translate that for me. Yeah. Which is why I love this depiction of the cross because it has the father holding Jesus up like Aaron held up Moses's arms and it has the spirit there interceding in Jesus's heart, just like Paul talked about, that the Spirit intercedes in our hearts when we encounter hell. And do you know what the Spirit intercedes in our hearts telling us when we encounter hell? Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Do you know what the Spirit interceded in Jesus's heart when he was hanging on the cross? Nothing can separate you from the love of the Father. That's when Jesus would have cried out, to the Father. So the reason why I, I show this cross, Thomas is exactly right, isn't just so you look at the cross. The cross is supposed to say something to you. The cross is actually the Father talking to all of us. And to Thomas's point, we've, we've and to the lesser point I made in a different way, we've had that stripped from us, right? The cross is, is like the Father coming sitting at a campfire with all of his kids to reason with us because there was a way that seemed right to us. And that way was killing us. Yeah. And so he come and re sat down with us by the campfire and reasoned with us. It's almost like the campfire, right? Where you're a little kid, you don't know fire can burn you, right? In fact, you kind of like the fire when you're a little kid. You think it, it looks cool. I look at that fire. It's light. It's nice. And if you're a little kid, you might be there trying to put your hand in the fire over and over and over and over again. Over and over and over again, trying to put your hand in the fire. And the Father keeps trying to tell you that fire will burn you. Don't put your hand in the fire. But you don't understand. You don't get it. So you know what the Father does? He puts his hand in the fire. And now you see his hand crackle and burn. Okay, that's speaking something to me. The fire, if I put my hand in it, will kill me. This is God taking into himself the wages of our wisdom. And do you know what our wisdom was? That we could have life by our own works, by our own strength. And this is God taking into himself the fruit that came from us believing that. So that we could see the way you think is unto life, guys, this is what it does. That's part of the teaching and instruction, right? So that you would then look to your strength and like Leviticus says, afflict your soul and do no work. Mm -hmm. Afflict your soul doesn't mean feel real bad. Doesn't mean feel shame. Afflict your soul means to look at your flesh, which is one of the meanings for soul. And to conclude that your flesh possesses no power towards the end of clothing you with life. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He needed to be clothed, but he looked at himself. That's why his hands are nailed to a tree. It's one of the reasons. So we could see clearly he did no work. Yes. What's the work he did? Yes, he he cried out to the Father. Yeah. So that we could see clearly the way that was unto death and the way that was unto life. Right? And that we would find ourselves... Because we all need to be clothed too. This is what the world tries to do to all of us. Mm -hmm. Tries to nail all of us to a cross. Mm -hmm. And then it tries to tempt us to take up our own life. To clothe ourselves. Where's your God now? Why do you think we hear the same voice, where's your God now, that Jesus heard? Why do you think we hear that? That's because that's what every human has heard yeah. when they have encountered death. Mm -hmm. Where's your God now? Do you know why Satan says that? He's trying to convince you you're an orphan. He's trying to get you to clothe yourself. Well, God's trying to show us, you don't have to clothe yourself. I'm with you. There's not punishment in my hand waiting for you. Because many times when your nakedness is uncovered, you also have the thought of, 
what what secret sin do I have that caused this to happen? Yeah. You also start thinking about this is punishment because of what you've done, yeah. right? And then, without knowing it, you think that that has some kind of connection with God because you conclude that if God was really happy with you, he could have kept this from happening. Yeah. And if he could have kept this from happening and he didn't, what does that mean about what he thinks about me? Yeah. Right? Amen. This comes to blow that whole idea up, right? So that you start to see that there isn't punishment in the hands of God. Punishment comes from the serpent. It's the bite of the serpent. It's death that comes from the serpent. It says the wages of sin is death, right? It's the serpent that kills, steals, and destroys. It's not God. Right. Jesus said that. What did Jesus say? It's the thief that steals, kills, and destroys. Who's the thief? Serpent. Satan. Okay, what did he say about himself? I come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And, and whose gospel did he say that in? John's. And how does John begin his gospel? I am the light of the world. That's one of it, but what does it begin? In the, in the beginning. beginning. In, the begin, in the beginning was what? The Word. The word. And the Word was? Made flesh. The, and the Word was with God, and the Word was? God. No, the Word was God. Yeah. Okay, we forget that's how John begins his gospel. So when Jesus says, it's the thief that steals, kills, and destroys, but I am come that you might have life. He's God. And what he's trying to tell you is, you guys think it's God who has punishment and death and, and killing in yeah. his hand for sinners. But I'm God. And that's not what's in my hand. It's the abundant life that's in my hand. I come to give you a life that abounds over death. Right? right. And this is the cross trying to reveal that to us. And that's what Jesus saw. And he had to see it in the midst of everything telling him God wasn't there. Right? Can you explain why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, so I've said this a million times, but let's see if I can say <laughs> for, it. For people who have never heard. Let's see if I can say it concisely. All right, so when Jesus says that on the cross, he didn't just say it out of the blue. Like, we tend to read that, and we think he just said it because he was hurting. But he doesn't just say it out of the blue. He says it in response to something the Pharisees said to him. You should go and read it in its context. And do you know what they were just saying to him? You're not the son. Yeah. Right. Where's your God now? If he really loves you, let him come for you. Okay? Well, then Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does everybody understand that Jesus was quoting a verse? Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. No, we didn't know that. Till no. you okay, well, Psalm 23 begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. So Jesus didn't wasn't just speaking out of anguish. 22. 22, 22 yeah. sorry. He was quoting a song right. that every single person there would have known the whole song, right. right? And not only is he just quoting the psalm so that they could know, he was quoting the psalm to rebuke the lie. And there's a history of Jesus doing this in the scriptures. Remember when Jesus was tempted the first time? What did he quote every time the certain tempted him? The scriptures. He quoted the scriptures back to Satan is what he did. Well, right after Satan fled from Jesus because he quoted the scriptures to rebuke what Satan was trying to tell him, it says, and Satan departed from him till a more opportune time to tempt him. Do you know what the more opt opportune time to tempt him was? And there's Satan again tempting him. Do you know what Satan's tempting Jesus to do? Come down off the cross. Yes. <laughs> and do you know what he's using to tempt him? You're not the son. Yeah. If you were the son, where's God now? That's the same thing he did to the first man, Adam. The first man, Adam, believed the temptation. And then he started trying to clothe himself. That's Adam coming down off the cross. Now Jesus hears the same voices, if you really are the Son, come down off the cross. If you really are the Son of God, where's your God now? Tempting Jesus to believe he's alone. Well, just like Jesus quoted the scripture in the desert, in the wilderness, he quotes Psalm 22 to rebuke them and to rebuke the lie. And so he quotes Psalm 22, which begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm -hmm. Right? Well, if you know anything about the Hebrew thought with the psalm, a psalm is a song. Yeah. And you don't ever break a psalm up verse by verse. It's a complete thought. You hear the whole thought. No Hebrew person would have heard the first verse and stopped there. They would have immediately recounted the whole psalm in their heart. Go and read Psalm 22 after you leave here. And do you know what it says down around? First of all, it describes Jesus on the cross. And it describes those guys surrounding him like the bulls of Bashan, gaping on him with their mouth, mocking him. 
That's what it describes. That's exactly what they were doing. Do you know what it goes? Well, you know what the guy on the cross in Psalm 22 goes on to say? After he says, they surrounded me, they gaped upon me with their mouth. Do you know what he goes on to say? You have not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted one. Neither is your face hid from him, but you hear him when he cries out to you. That's verse 24 in Psalm 22. That's what Jesus was saying to those dudes. You think I'm the forsaken of God? You think his face is hid from me? He will hear me when I cry out to him. That's why he cries out, Abba. He declares the name of God in the midst of the congregation, right? He calls him Father. What did we think we didn't have? A father. Jesus said, I'm going away from you. He said, it's better for you if I leave. I'll send another one like unto me with you. He will be the comforter. I will not leave you comfortless. You know what the word comfortless in the Greek means? Orphan. I will not leave you feeling like you're an orphan without a father to care for your life. Do you know what the death in the world tries to convince you of? You're an orphan without a father to care for your life. So there's Jesus on the cross. And do you know what the cross and all those people around him were trying to convince him of? He's an orphan without a father to care for his life. But he understood. He has not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted one. Neither is his face hid from him, but he hears him when he cries out to him. And then he cries out, Abba. And then what happens? He comes out of the grave. He comes out of the grave. If you go on and read Psalm 23, which is a continuation of Psalm 22, I know in our Western modern culture, we've broken all the scriptures up into individual verses. And so we think one verse closes the book. And we're on to the next verse. Psalm 23 is the same guy in Psalm 22 that said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does he start off Psalm 23 saying? The Lord is my shepherd. I do not lack. All right, I got a question. Hold on, hold on. I want to finish the verse because he still says it. He goes on to say, he leadeth me beside the still waters. He maketh me to lie down in the tender green grass. What does he go on to say? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Do you know where Jesus was hanging? In the valley of the shadow of death. Do you know what he says? I will fear no evil. I will not fear this death. Why does he say he won't fear this death? For you are with me, Lord your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Do you know why Jesus didn't try to come down off the cross? You want to know why Jesus didn't try to clothe himself the way the first man, Adam, did? Because Jesus saw that the Father was with him. The first man, Adam, tried to clothe himself because he did not see the Father was with him. And so to make it personal, because this isn't just theology, we say all this so you could start to be persuaded that in the midst of your confusion or hurt or pain, that you could start to have eyes to see God there with you. Because it isn't just Jesus that was going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We're all walking through it. And we have since we were born. And we need in those moments to see God there with us. Because that will comfort us. You know what it will do? It will do the same thing in us. It will lead us beside the still waters of grace. It will make us to lie down in the tender green grass. Right? It, it will cause us to see that we're not lambs being led away to a slaughter. We actually have a shepherd. Right? Sorry, go ahead. That's okay. I understand the declarations in Psalm 22 and then 23 of demonstrating the faith of the Son and the Father. But I've always been confused of why does 22 begin with the question, why have you forsaken me? It begins with the question because that's what man thought. Okay, I've heard you say that before, and I, I just confess, I, I never really understood that. So is he saying, as a man, I feel like you've forsaken me? That's the or word. is he saying, I'm going to say what all men think, you have forsaken me? That's the word that they were saying to him, is that he was forsaken. They were saying that to him because that's the wisdom of the serpent that's permeated. No, all... I, I understand that, but why is he saying, why have you forsaken okay, so... me? It's like him asking a question. To the Father, why have you forsaken me? So, so listen to what I'm saying. Okay, he said that because that's what every human has concluded. Right. When he said it on the cross, he was quoting a scripture. I get that. Right. So he wasn't saying it from the perspective of him believing it. Do you see? I understand the explanation. I just don't understand. <laughs> I'm not computing how I'm reading the translation, of course, and it starts with. 
him being quoted as asking a question to the father, why have you forsaken He's me? He's not the one asking the question. Yeah, okay, that's where I'm getting tripped. He's up. quoting that verse. No, I, I get that. Okay. But the verse is prophetic, and it's David and Psalms, and yeah. the question is in the voice of Jesus. The question is in the heart of man. I get that too. Okay, so Jesus. My question is, was it in the heart of Jesus? No. Okay. That's the way it reads to no. me. No. Not that I believe he felt forsaken, but that's the way it reads it to me. It can only that's read that way if Jesus was the man that wrote the verse. He's not the man that wrote the verse. <coughs> yeah, David wrote the verse, but right? I thought the and, verse was prophetic. And why did David write the verse? Well, David is a man, and he felt that. Okay, so, all right, so, but what did David think about the feeling that he had? Well, he, he deconstructed it and turned it around to faith in God. <coughs> right. So, can you also see that with Jesus? Not in direct parallel because I didn't. I don't see Jesus as ever doubting the Father to conclude that he had been forsaken. Okay, so here, here's here's the question I would pose to you: Why? What makes you think that David doubted the Father? Because uh, the, the Scripture says David was a man after God's own heart. Well, the superficial answer is he was a man and he was subject to doubt. But I'd have to go back and hunt for examples. Let's see. Here he did when he. When his when he did this, when he sent uh, Uriah to the front line <laughs> to die to well, get he, well, he was he was like confused that. for for sure. Yeah. When, but that wouldn't have when he that wouldn't have been like the the confrontation of death, and that God had forsaken him. When would David have confronted death, right? So you can give shape to Psalm twenty two and Psalm twenty three. When would David have confronted death in his life? Well, the most obvious Goliath? example is Goliath. Goliath, Saul. When Saul trying to come against him. Yeah. What about when his son dies? Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. What does he say when his son dies? I, uh, you can't come to me. I'm gonna go to you. What does he say about God when his son dies? Yeah, that he'll preserve him. Right. So every human, and that's a this is a good question because the statement that Jesus is quoting a verse isn't just a statement for us. It's the manifold wisdom of God, and just because Jesus understood the truth doesn't mean he didn't feel the pain that comes from that thought, right? Mm -hmm. So David felt. <coughs> you can feel forsaken without believing you are forsaken. Yeah. Right. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. Like death presses in on you and you would feel the weight of that belief. You would hear the voices telling you you're forsaken, right? right? So you could feel that the weight of that and then you would process through it. Right, And so Jesus, just because he knew the truth and quoted the verse, he wasn't just quoting the verse and doing all that for our benefit. He's also a man. He's fully God and fully man. So even as a man, Jesus was processing with the Holy Spirit the truth. And so he's quoting back the scripture because in that moment, he would have felt the angst. Right? So it isn't like Jesus is like, wow, I don't feel anything. This is lovely. No, he feels the full weight. That's what it means that he tasted everything that we tasted. So he would have to feel the confusion that would come, right? So the moment they're telling him he's forsaken by God, I'm just going to walk you through what this could look like. He's looking at himself. Yeah, I don't look like God. I mean, my goodness, my body's dying. His blood is coming out of him. There's nobody, his, his, only his mother and John are there. No one's there with him. He could feel the full weight of, where's God? He could hear that thought. You know, we hear accusations, don't we? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yes. Do you feel something when you hear an accusation? Yes. I mean, there's times now where I hear an accusation that I know isn't true, but I still feel it. And then I go and sit with God. And so Jesus would have felt the full weight of the accusation, and then he would have processed it, or the Holy Spirit would have interceded in his heart, and then he would have processed it, and now he comes quoting the verse, right? It, what's the verse about encourage yourself in the Lord? He was being encouraged in the Lord by the... The, the truth, mm -hmm. the yeah, words, yeah. right? And even if you read that verse, it's complicated because we we dissect, especially someone like you and me, because you're an attorney. You dissect. Not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> repented. You repented. <laughs> That'll make Phil very happy. <laughs> That's just an inside joke between Phil and I. But if you go and read Psalm 22, and I encourage everybody to go back and read it, David seemingly, if we're talking about David there, David seemingly says contrary things. <laughs> Things that seem opposed to each other at right. the same time. Oh, yeah. 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 Right? right? And what's difficult for us to understand because we read chronologically. So our minds mm -hmm. want to say, okay, he first believed this. 
And then he believed that. But David is like, if you step outside of time, all of that happened at one time. He's describing the things he felt, the voices he heard, and then he's describing how it was processed. And so you see all of it, right? And so even though Jesus believed the truth, that whole process would have still gone on inside of him because he would have had to have the Holy Spirit come in and strengthen him and all that kind of a thing, right? So if I can put it another way, see if you agree with this, Greg. So you're saying he wrote down a question that was in his mind at the time he was going through this, but not that he believed it. That's right. Okay. And he gave you eyes to look into his heart and how it was processed, right? He even talks about, if you, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember the exact words, but he talks about how God was with him from his womb. He says that in like the third verse, which would contradict the idea that God had forsaken him. Do you see what I'm saying? And so the ability to hear the voice telling you you're forsaken, the ability to feel weakness because everything you see around you is death, doesn't mean you believe let's, you were forsaken. So an illustration might be, let's say uh, someone loses a child. And in their mind, they have this, God, do you not love me? Yeah. That's going through because Satan wants them to believe that God doesn't love them because of the loss of the child. Right. But that doesn't mean that they're believing that. That just means they're tempting, being tempted. To that means that. they're hearing an accusation right. that God doesn't love them. Yeah. They're verbalizing it. And do you know yeah. where you yeah. would where you would come from if an accusation, you would come to God? Right? And you might ask him about the voice you're hearing. Yeah. Because a lot of people want to use that to say, see, God forsook him. And Jesus felt forsaken. Yeah. The, the, you can get into a lot of complex conversations about that. But where you run into a problem is that the same guy says in verse 24, you have not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted yeah, one. Right. Neither is your face hid from him. You hear him when he cries out to you. Yeah, and in right. the third or fourth verse, he says that you've been with me since my womb. Yeah. And then you go mm -hmm. to the 23. But people cherry pick. No. Yeah. And that's the whole point. If... It's very nice for us for reference reasons. What do we have? The Dewey Decimal System, right? And that's old school. Where, where you, can, you can chronicle things to make it easier to find things. Well, I don't know if people realize this, but the scriptures were never broken up into chapter or verses before. Right. They never were. Now, we've done that. And I don't say it's evil we did that, but that's a modern construct. We did that so we could have references like a Dewey Decimal System to find things easier. Yeah, it's like looking at a picture and you're going to say, we're going to divide this in quadrants and you're going to look at one and then we're going to move on to the next instead of looking at the whole thing. Instead of looking at the whole thing. So it's, it's good that we have the references, but what it's done is it's made it difficult for us to see the whole picture. Right. So we read Psalm 22 and we read one verse and then we close the book and we're on to another thought. Or we get to the end of Psalm 22 and we think that chapter's over. Psalm 23 is a new chapter talking about something completely different. But it's not. It's talking about the same thing. It's one flowing thought. And when we get into, that's what's called eisegesis in theological terms. Eisegesis is where you pluck one verse out of the context and you develop a teaching around one verse. That's where we've gotten that Jesus was forsaken. We pluck one verse out of context, and then we teach it instead of looking at the whole context. Exegesis would be where you look at the context of the whole chapter, right? And the way that would sort itself out in people who like to study the scriptures, you could read Psalm 22, the first verse, and think, okay, yeah, that guy thought he was forsaken. That's a reasonable thought. But what's supposed to happen, if you see it as one whole thought, you would get down to the other verse. You say, well, why did that dude say that God was with him since the time of his womb, his mother's womb? Why did that guy say that God doesn't abhor him and that his face isn't hid from him? And, th and so then you would say, okay, well, that seemingly contradicts the first verse. So now you would step back and say, okay, what's really going on here? What's really being communicated here? And then you would have the opportunity to see the context in its whole instead of plucking out different things, That's right? Which you. is the same problem in many, many scriptures in the yeah. Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People pull this one out and pull that one out and they have no idea what yeah. it really means. Yeah. And I'll say this too for anybody really interested in this topic because I feel like this topic did a lot for me. But Greg taught a three-part series many years ago when we were in the old building on this very topic. And I don't remember, it was a long time ago, but it's, you know, it's on the website somewhere. Um, but it was beautiful and he taught it over three different weeks. So the Bible says there is no God. Yeah. A fool says in his heart. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> See, I mean, then. And I, and I think, I, I don't like to say this, but I will. I think for Western Westerners, we're Westerners, and I don't mean that as a disparaging thing, but I think many times Westerners 
we don't even realize where the doctrines we believe came from. True. We've just heard them. That's why Jesus said the traditions of man make the word of God of none effect. Most Westerners that believe Jesus was forsaken by God don't even know the verse in John 12 where Jesus says he won't be alone. The Father will be with him. They don't see Paul saying God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. They completely lose sight that Jesus is God. Right? He's part of the Godhead. Can the Godhead exist if one part isn't there? No. Can God now be separated from himself? And so we don't think about these things, but, you know, Western theology began with Augustine. Didn't begin with Paul. Right? right? You, you, don't, you know what you don't see any of the apostles say? You can't find one verse in any of the apostolic letters that say Jesus was forsaken by God. You know what else you can't find one verse saying? That God poured out his wrath on Jesus. You can't find one of the apostles writing that in any of their letters. But we've developed our whole Western thought on those things. And you know where we got that from? Augustine. And then do you know where we continue to get it from? John Calvin, right? They're, they're, the church split back in like 400, 500 AD, and it split into what's called Western and Eastern. Right. And Western and Eastern had two different thoughts. And you know why? one of the big reasons why they split? There are several reasons why they split. That's where you get Protestantism starting to come in. One of the big reasons why they split was the atonement theory. The Eastern church said it's blasphemy to say that the Father forsook the Son. The reason why they said it's blasphemy is because it declares Jesus isn't God. Yeah. And it, how can G, if Jesus is our Savior and he's not God, then it's not God who saved us. It's a man. <laughs> and they considered that blasphemy. So they believed in what, I've said this many times, Christus Victor, which is that Jesus is God come in the flesh to slay the giant of death. Yes. And so Jesus is God, the way he slew death for our behalf. He's like our David. He comes as our champion. He takes our death into his own body, knowing that because he's God, he has a life that can't die. So he takes our death into his body and takes death into the grave. And then he comes out of the grave, having a life inside of a body that can never die again. And that's what he offers to all of us. That's what they believe. And they think it, they, they would call the Western atonement theory heresy. And they would say many things about it. They would say it maligns the nature of God. But at the core of it, they would say if you fill out the whole picture, essentially what you're saying is Jesus isn't God. That he stopped being God on the cross. Right? Well, if Jesus stopped being God on the cross, then we have a significant problem. Right? Because... If God is a trinity and all of a sudden the son isn't present with God, who is it that's holding all things together? Because it, it says, John says that all things were created by Jesus. It says there's nothing exists apart from him having made it to exist. So if Jesus is no longer God and no longer the word, who's holding everything together? By the power of his might. And so we, we have serious, anthro, the theology would call it anthro, anthropological problems, if we want to say that. Right? And now we get off into to theological terms. Um, I tend to focus on this. What ails humans is death. And it isn't just physical death that ails us. It's what that physical death tries to tell us about God and about ourselves. Right? Well, God needed to convince us that he was with us, even in the midst of our nakedness being uncovered by death. That's how he would give us sight. The cross is God doing that, yeah. right? And the resurrection is the proof that God was with Jesus mm -hmm. and he is the son. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, how did he come out of the grave? Yeah. I mean, Jesus said he was good. We, we lose sight of this too. Jesus prophesied that he was going to go to the cross yeah. and that he would be raised from the dead. So all of a sudden on the cross, Jesus forgot he would be raised from the dead. <laughs> all of a sudden on the cross, he didn't think he would be raised from the dead. Mm -hmm. So if Jesus was raised from the dead, was he actually forsaken by God? No. The guy was raised from the dead. Yeah. I mean, just intellectually, that ends the argument. Right. If he was forsaken by God, then he wouldn't have been raised from the dead. Right. The fact that he's raised from the dead destroys the idea that he was forsaken by God. Where, where along there did God decide to come back, right? <laughs> I mean, Psalm 16, prophetically speaking of Jesus, says, You shall not suffer your Holy One to see corruption. Right. Neither will you leave his... Soul in hell. No. Okay, who's the holy one? Jesus. Jesus. And what does Jesus say? You will not suffer your holy one to see corruption. Neither will you leave his soul in hell. So what is it Jesus believed? God that God was always with him. 
He had a good, good father. That's why he's not a sinner. That's what we don't understand. He tasted our weakness yet without sin. Do you know what sin is? Unbelief. Unbelief is sin. And so if Jesus came, unbelief is to believe God isn't with you. Right. Unbelief is to believe he's not going to clothe you. you got to clothe yourself. And so if Jesus came into the earth and believed that same thing, he's in unbelief. Mm-hmm. And that would make him a sinner. Right. Even the guy on the cross, what did the centurion say? Truly, this was a what? Righteous man. When did he say that about Jesus? After he was raised from the dead or when he was on the cross? On the cross. What does the scripture say about God forsaking a righteous man? Never. Never. <laughs> Never. What does, the, what does the other gospel say about the centurion saying about Jesus? Truly, he was the son of God. Yeah. Yeah. So were those guys wrong? When we talk about the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus as if that came from God. I love what Batterty says. It's like we think the, the Pharisees and the Roman centurions that crucified Jesus were filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> They're the ones that nailed him to the cross. Yeah. Now, whose influence were they under? God's? No. Or the, the serpent? Serpents. Isaiah 53, do you know what it says? It says that Jesus carried our griefs and our sorrows. Do you know what that means? That his death was at our hands. And do you know what it says there? It says we looked at him and esteemed him smitten and stricken by God. It says we esteemed that. Doesn't say it was true. We smote and struck Jesus. And then we said God did it. That's the Adam man. When God said, did you eat from the tree, Adam? You know what Adam said? It's that woman you gave me. That's right. right. Okay, well, that was the same thing going on at the cross. They stripped Jesus naked. They flogged him to death. They nailed him to a cross. And then they looked at him and said, God did it. (laughs) What? Are you losing your mind? No. God didn't strike Jesus. And then you say, well, then why does Isaiah say that it pleased God for Jesus to be bruised? And this, again, this helps fill out the picture. You know, Isaiah says, Isaiah 53, it pleased God to bruise him. Well, who did God say would bruise Jesus in Genesis 3? The serpent. Go and read it. Okay, so God says that he prophesies to the woman and to the serpent. And he says, the seed of woman will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. That's what he says. That's what God said. So God told us who would bruise Jesus. But no, no, we know better than God because we can read the scriptures. (laughs) We say that God bruised Jesus. But God said the serpent would bruise Jesus. But then God says, and it will please me for him to be bruised because in you bruising him, in you bruising his heel, the nail went through Jesus' heel. You can go read it. And you bruising his heel, he's going to crush your head. And then it goes on to say that it pleased God for Jesus to be bruised because he was going to deliver or save many people through that. Mm -hmm. And so God says who's going to bruise Jesus on the cross. And it ain't him. But we have our whole Western theology that says it's God that did that to him. When God himself said that the serpent would bruise him. Right? Yeah. we completely read Isaiah 53, completely out of context. Right. And we feel cognitive dissonance. Listen, God told me this for years, and I argued with him and said, I can't say that. What about these verses? And so you can feel cognitive dissonance. And the easy thing is to say, no, 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 I've worked my whole life to formulate my beliefs. I'm not going to change them. I don't care if they're wrong. I don't want to hear it. No, no, no. no. I, listen, I did that with God. I promise you, I did. And then he, he started showing me all the verses in context. And I started seeing a psalm as one thought. If you sing a psalm. Every Hebrew person there knows that. It's one thought. It isn't verse by verse. The dude is declaring one thought. And what's the thought? Go and read Psalm 22. The guy talks about how God's face isn't hid from him. And then he goes into this awesome chant about how he's going to declare God in the midst of the congregation. And then what does he do? Abba! What is he declaring about God? Father! Yes. All these people think they're orphans. This death is why they think it. I'm going to cry out to you in the midst of this body of death so they could see you here with me, right? And in the resurrection, they'll know. Yes. And then he does it. Yeah. <laughs> and now what are we supposed to know? That God will never forsake leave us. or forsake us. So are we going to have a different faith than Jesus had? 
I mean, we say we live by the faith of the Son of God, but we say the Son of God believed that he was left and forsaken. And then we wonder why we struggle to believe we haven't been left or forsaken. Because we conclude Jesus was smitten and stricken by God. Do you know that if that's our belief, the first time we encounter death, do you know what we're going to think? We've been smitten and stricken by God. And we even have people declaring it all over the place. You look at the hell happening in the country. That's the judgment of God. As if God's the thief now. No, the death that's in the country is because the country has adopted the wisdom of the serpent. And now the serpent's wisdom is bringing forth death. Yes, That's not God. The judgment of God isn't that he serves people with death. The judgment of God is he comes and shows man. He declares to us what it is that produces death. So we don't go that way. God's not the punisher. He's the healer. Amen. Jesus himself said this when he delivered the demons. And they accused him of delivering the demon by the power of Beelzebub. And you know what he said? I cannot be the one who gives the demon and the one who heals. God can't be the punisher and the healer. A house divided against itself cannot stand. That's why Jesus said, I'm not the thief. It's the thief that does those things that you think God does. I'm God now in the flesh, and I'm going to show you what God does. He heals. He justifies. He removes accusations. Right? Right? It's like the resurrection was the greatest rebuttal argument of all time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Glory to God. Thank you guys so much.